0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. Now, on our previous show we mentioned that our next episode would be on Nixon in China. We have, however, changed plans a little bit, and we have decided to expand our pro-Nixon message by doing a whole trilogy on The Great Man, which will be Nixon Law and Order, Nixon in China, and Watergate. You can look out for those episodes in the coming months. In today's episode, we're going to look at the recently released Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The film is set in 1969 and follows the life of fictional faded TV actor Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his stunt double Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. The film also features Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate the actress who was married to Roman Polanski and died at the hands of the members of the Manson family in what became a defining moment of the era. Before we go any further, just a spoiler warning, we will be diving deep into the film, including its spectacular ending, so if you don't want to know about it, I suggest watching the film before listening to this podcast. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, I'm Mr. Schwartz. I'm in my office. Put it there. That your son?
1: No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. (laughs) All the shooting. (laughs) I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried
0: sauerkraut?
1: you still the wreck, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. <laughs> line? Cut! You embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people! <laughs> Alright, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy has
0: been here I am flat on my ass and who, who I got living
1: next door to me I'm Sharon Tate I'm in the movie you're in this that's me I play Miss Carlson the klutz
0: oh. <laughs> Charlie's gonna dig you and that gospel
1: this town.
0: I can all change like that. Hey, you're at fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. Toby, first off, what was your reaction to watching the film? What did you think?
1: Well, I, I really, really enjoyed this film. And I think like the, the best thing about this film is that like you, I rarely watch a film where I actually want to be in the film. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of scenes in this film that are just like uh, Cliff in his car, listening yes. to a lot of really, really great music. And, and and some of the the music is coming from him. And some of the, some of the music is you know external to the to the film itself. But it's just magnificent. Like uh, late. 1960s LA is shimmers in this movie. Really, it does. It's almost like when you play like a video game, like an open world video game. Mm -hmm. And there's some open world games. I remember the old Spider-Man games where you like, like you just live there. And then mm-hmm. that's the thing about this movie. Although you know, black people can't really go to the past. You know, so <laughs> I can't go. To, I can't go to the late sixties LA, because there's a lot of riots and things. Uh, <laughs> that, a lot that, of that's discontent. a joke like
0: time travel, isn't it? You know, it's a white person. Yeah, name. yeah.
1: Like... <laughs> and I think yeah. Tarantino movies, especially Tarantino historical movies, seem to provide people people, I mean T- Tarantino himself with the ability to do that. You know, take taking Glorious Bosses for example, where he creates the Bear Jew and he has this yes. almost like uh what is almost like a revenge narrative that he can enact in the past that, you know, you you, you just wouldn't like no other director seems to be allowed to do that with the uh, you know, archives of the past. And he does that this hair fantastically.
0: It is interesting that this is sort of the completion of a trilogy, I suppose, in some ways for Tarantino, if he doesn't do any more sort of retconning history in, in the sense that, you know, he went back to World War II and changed the past and he went back to um, the time of slavery and changed at least the sort of idea of what a slave was living through to some extent, and at least in the personal story as it was, it was told for the Django character. And then here he has he has sort of rebuilt the world of the 1960s, late 1960s Hollywood. But as you say, at the same time, he has reinvented the tale. And when you, when, when you hear about Tarantino's going to make a film about the Manson murders, it's a very different picture in your head to what actually came out as being the, the end product. Even you saw that in the trailers, when it kind of first came out, it was hinted at that there was, you know, the darkness of the Manson era, but the majority of the trailer is, you know, it's, it's enjoying this world. It's setting up these characters, setting up this this time to be alive and where you're, as you say, you're driving through Hollywood and you're you're blasting music and you're feeling the sunshine. And it's, it's a world you want to live in. I yeah. It's interesting in the sense that you don't particularly want to live in the World War II era because of all the terrible tragedy and obviously the same for slavery. But with, with this history revisiting it, it very much is a world you want to live in outside of say the sort of hippie commune side of the kind of thing which is very much the darkness of this tale and I think when I when I, I've only seen the film once I saw it in the cinema and I felt I felt I've enjoyed the more enjoyed the film more afterwards than I probably did at the time there were things I really liked about the film when I saw it and the ending is spectacular which we'll kind of come on to later I did think at the time it was very kind of Self-indulgent Tarantino. It was kind of him at his most. I want to make a world, and I want to spend two and a half hours just watching Brad Pitt make dog food. You know it. it yeah,
1: was... yeah. Especially in the middle section of this movie. Like the, yeah. the the beginning of this movie is really good. Um There's a lot of great scenes, especially when he he's in you know the old Hollywood with with um, DiCaprio with with, yeah. with Pacino as the producer. There's there's a lot of really good scenes there. And there's a lot of jumping in in DiCaprio's career to different you know different scenes. Some scenes where he played a you know war hero, which is a harkening back to Tarantino's own you know Absolutely. stuff in Glorious Bastards*. But then by the middle of the film, and the threads seem to get a little loose. And I mean, that's the opportunity you get for you know like long rides with. Sharon Tate. They don't really even mm-hmm. go anywhere, you know. No. She's listening to music. She heads to the cinema. She no. She asks the the person at the concession stand, "Can she get in because she's in the she's in the movie?" And she gets yes. in. She listens to the crowd, and then that that's that scene has no narrative purpose for the for the rest of the movie. There's a lot of these sort of loose scenes, but that I think maybe Tarantino was trying to build the experience of just being in there, like there is an authenticity in this movie the authenticity is the authenticity of the old hollywood you know he's creating old hollywood he's creating these experiences he's creating late uh, 1960s la but he's not trying to create an authentically realistic narrative about what actually happened he's creating a real world which is yeah it's it's I mean, it's when a director has the ability to call upon the financing for something like this and not to stick to the script at all. It is a really interesting experiment. But he, I mean, I guess he just keeps on doing it. There.
0: (laughs) Yes, I know absolutely. It is. I mean, there are so many points to pull up about this film from the finer details of things like the fact that they, I think they had to kind of troll through. people who had actually recorded the radio off that time and actually because there was no proper archive for this as far as i understand this Mm -hmm. was whether or not people would record it off the radio etc or whether or not they got lucky if there was anything still remaining so like the audio clips that you hear of of the radio uh, dj introducing songs you there's a sense of you actually listening to the radio and taking you through the film the same way Mm -hmm. as you kind of did that in um, reservoir dogs the this, this sense if you're listening to the radio and it's it's a journey you're taking the audience on while you're listening to it and you're not just, you know, they have commercials for hair dye and they have, you know, commercials for X, Y and Z as, as part yeah. of this. I've listened to the soundtrack almost non-stop since I've seen the film and that was a good few weeks ago. It uh, is
1: fantastic. It it, it
0: is absolutely I, I don't,
1: amazing. I mean, maybe because I when I was watching those Tarantino films, I I was in my late teens, like, I haven't really mm-hmm. revisited, like, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs in a long time. Yeah. So, like, when I think about a film like this, I think about Scorsese and what Scorsese does, and how yeah. Scorsese brings them the stones. Like, here you've got, like, songs by, like, you know, people like uh, Deep Purple and things like that. Mm-hmm. People like uh, Los Bravos, California Dreaming, like... By yeah. uh, Josh uh, of Fiona, yeah. it's fantastic, and there's some Beatles thrown in in, in here as well. I think. Yeah, I it's, mean it's, it's some of really, it's... really good, and it's such it's I wow like it's a film that I would just I think will I just have playing, yes, in the future I, because absolutely. it it, it, it there's really good experience.
0: Agreed, and so many songs I never heard of, like the Buchanan Brothers' "Son of a Loving Man," which is. An absolutely fantastic song and at the same time the most sort of sixties, seventies, like just sexist pig type song in the world, where this guy's (laughs) singing about how his daddy's daddy taught his daddy, who then taught him that he should just sleep around and never settle down because, you know, that's what a man should do. And it's If you actually listen to the lyrics, it's kind of like, it's not woke, it would be cancelled, but it's so gloriously good and so entertaining and got such a good rhythm to it. And it fits so perfectly within the the era and the the tale that uh, Tarantino is telling that, you know, you don't care about any of that stuff, really. You just, you have a three-minute pop song, which is just absolutely perfect. And, you know, other things like, um, I'm just looking at it now, Uh, I'm actually looking at the... uh, you mentioned Deep Purple. You've got the Circle Game. You've got a lovely uh, Mrs. Robinson. I I listen to quite a lot of Simon and Garfunkel, and mm-hmm. it's all the kind of remaster stuff. This this feels this feels like an original recording. It's a little bit more kind of wispy on on the actual um, audio quality. And there's something about that, plus the fact that if you actually listen to the soundtrack, the DJ actually introduces the song, and there's something it feels more alive having an original recording introduced by uh, an authentic radio DJ of the time introduce that song it's like you are back in the time and it, it's it's very different to just listening to a remastered version which you have on a greatest hits or something like that It it does somehow make the song feel more alive and there's just so many kind of little things throughout the soundtrack which just are just absolutely perfect even if they are you know questionable this i mean there's a song called hey little girl and it's about trying to pick up schoolgirls, from what i can tell and it's the most fantastically catchy song in the world but if you were to stop and try and sing those lyrics out loud, loud these days you probably would be arrested it's it's just it, it's off its time and place and you know maybe yeah those, like, yeah it,
1: it, it, it very much reflects the values of, of that period but the other thing that i found interesting and like i think of, like a central tension in this movie is the tension between I think old Hollywood and then yes. the mm-hmm. counterculture because like the city is a lot of all of this music, all of this new uh, music, all of this mm-hmm. like countercultural um, artifacts and stuff. And, and I think, think in the presence of that girl, Hippie Girl, which yes. Cliff, uh, who is the Pussy Cat, I think her name four, might be. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Hippie Girl, uh, Pussycat was her name. And... And then she tries to stop Cliff a bunch of times to you know come and take a ride with her, yep. and and she in many ways is sort of and then there there's a when he, Cliff, has finally decided to pick her up, yeah. She tells him that she wants to like sock him off or something like that, yes. and and he's like, whoa, yes. And then and Liz, in that scene, yeah. How old are you? Yeah. And then yeah. but also in that scene, she's like, she's like, um, I don't like actors because they pretend to kill people yes but and and they don't they'd don't actually kill but they don't really care about people who were being killed or the, you know something like that and that that kind of sentiment was like there's a there's a tension in this movie between the authenticity of the the counterculture and those kinds of people and then the old hollywood feeling that you know artifice um and, and things like that which will entertain people are important. So that that I think that theme runs throughout the movie. Yes. But then I also think that that Tarantino does not. And I think you mentioned that early. He doesn't romanticize the hippies. You know, no. like it, the hippies. Obviously, like this is this is you know in many ways associated with the Manson family, which was almost the like the darkest edge of, you mm. know, the most atavistic and violent edge of this. This 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 season of Aquarius almost <laughs> but I feel like there's a feeling that Tarantino's hippies maybe because this is, has to do with the Manson family or maybe it might have to do with the Tarantino's feeling as well like they are not the hippies of Tom Wolfe's like Electric or acid test they're much more like in line with critiques of hi- hippie culture they say like you know that the, when they go to the the place that used to be a film set like a ranch that the hippies live at you know it's very drab it looks doesn't look um the 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 men there look like they're like malnourished yeah they look look like like meth addicts like for today they don't look happy they don't look like this sort of this new wave of the future it it is it's quite it's quite drab and and also and, and actually quite depressing in many ways
0: Yeah, I I think you touched on kind of a crucial point there, which is how Tarantino sees old Hollywood, new Hollywood, and this kind of this point of counterculture. This film was set in 1969, which is the same year year as Easy Rider came out, Mm -hmm. which was a very important film as far as the start of a a new Hollywood and as far as breaking away from from old Hollywood and, and representing counterculture kind of, on screen and a slightly darker side to it, whereas Easy Rider told a more sort of a love letter to those hippies, even if they were, even if there was a slightly dark undercurrent to it, it was more, it was sort of underneath the surface. Whereas, as you say, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is very much to the surface and it is very mm-hmm. much the dark edge of that time. And whereas Easy Rider did, even when it showed, you know, you know, you know struggling for food or whatever it is amongst the hippies that there wasn't this sort of explicit darkness that is filled throughout the once upon a time in hollywood as far as the the hippies are concerned and they're a constant source of kind of mockery and you know you look how brad pitt goes to the ranch and just completely owns them and beats up one of the, the male hippies and just completely sort of takes over that little town in itself and then you know later on when we get to the very explicit ending, which we'll touch on soon, no doubt. The kind of the last moment of the film is kind of a punchline for the hippies, and it, it's uh, he, kind of he, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is, is kind of asked, "Is everything okay?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, everyone's fine." You know, apart from the hippies, who they've just um, single him and Brad Pitt have just kind of destroyed um, using their sort of old Hollywood vengeance on them. It, it's it's interesting if. This was in 1969. What was kind of, ah, uh, it was a key moment in sort of societal America as far as counterculture and as far as what way things were shifting. The fact that the film, well, I suppose we could go into the. Do you want to go into the actual details of the ending now, or should we uh, concentrate a bit more on introducing the Sharon Tate side of it first?
1: No, I think we should introduce Sharon Tate's side of it and then go yeah. into the ending afterwards.
0: So, so the Sharon Tate side is interesting because, as you say. She doesn't get, I thought she'd have a bigger role in this film than she did. And it's interesting that Tarantino uses her, as you say, as a, a side character, but a way of bringing joy into the film. You know, mm-hmm. you, you sit with her and you you watch her watch a film which she's in and you see the delights that she has that people in the audience are finding her funny. And it's this, it's almost a short film outside of the main film about this young actress who's you know trying to grow her talent and trying to make her name in hollywood and she's you know she's i think she was eight months pregnant when um, she she died in real life and you know you, you see her you know but beca- you know setting up a family you know going to become a mother and it's, it's it's interesting that when tarantino was writing this film he did actually go see sharon tate's sister and spent time with her and sort of presented the script to her and Sharon Tate's sister was kind of very cautious because there have been so many retellings off, off that night and most mm-hmm. of them have just been sort of grimy horror And she's films. been in a
1: bunch of documentaries about it, of course. Yes, well. but, yeah. uh,
0: And the, the fact was that she was really... Uh, the story that she tells from the interview she's done afterwards is she was, tra- when watching the film and also being on set during that time, she was transported back to a world where her sister was still alive and Uh where you know for the two and a half hours where the film was going you know she actually had her sister back and you know when she was actually on set watching uh Sharon Tate being played by Margot Robbie it was like actually seeing her sister and there's quite a sweet edge to that the fact that yes for other reasons which we'll touch on later the events that happened in real life didn't actually play out in this film but there is now a reality where Sharon Tate did get the life that she wanted, and where she wasn't so hideously and brutally brutally murdered by these kind of hippie savages. It, it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting choice that Sharon Tate essentially gets a happy life as a result of Tarantino, which maybe isn't the thing that you might have thought when you combined the you know the Manson murders and Tarantino.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, but I think you just have to think that it's it's Tarantino going back to going back in history to kill baby Hitler you know <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's it's like and there are points of tension that are presented to Sharon, to Sharon Tate. like the the tension between Rowan Polanski and her ex-lover which never gets um elaborated on really nope. because Polanski goes 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 away abroad and she's just chilling with him and there isn't even like there aren't, they aren't even like having sex or, mm-hmm. you know, there isn't a is in the sense that that a kind of tension that's presented by the film itself, it doesn't become explored. And mm-hmm. all, the only tension that really exists in Taren, Sharon Tate's story arc is in the minds of the audience because the mm-hmm. audience knows the way this is supposed to end, the grisly end, but it never, it never happens. But yeah. I also think that so Sharon Tate has a reflection on Rick Dalton the Mm -hmm. the fictional character because because Sharon Tate is perfectly happy within this world of old Hollywood you know she's going to see herself I think it was an interview with Sharon Tate where she said that you know she'd never do Shakespeare she 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 felt she wasn't capable of it and she wanted to do like comedies and you see her in that film with Dean I think it's Dean Martin in the in the the, the cinema and then she's really enjoying it she's really enjoying she's And then he's having a lot of fun. But then you go back to Rick Dalton. Dalton seems to be in in a career rut. He seems to be in a period of deep anxiety. Even though any time he gets mentioned by anyone, it's like, oh, he's the guy from that TV show. Yeah. Everyone seems to know him when he gets mentioned. But but in his mind, he's not having fun with it. The, the, the The classical beats of the narratives that he's in in these westerns don't seem to be offering him... A sense of uh, personal actualization even though you know his friend Cliff will say actually you know going off to Italy to do spaghetti westerns doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world he's just in a rut, you know and he can't he he can't seem to get out of it and there's a dynamic where that he's living next to um, Roman Polanski and although Sharon Tate is is much more of the character in this film polanski actually represents this new hollywood you know yeah uh, he represents the because it, in in this period in time when you know old hollywood was not really generating the type kinds of uh, re- receipts at the box office that it, that it used to and there was this, this new executives who were trying to pull from this european style i think the height of the european style is probably in films like um blow up by uh, uh, and Antonioni and um Roman Polanski really represents that kind of new European style you know he he was a holocaust survivor things like linearity things like temporality things like um the the, the general narratives that they were using in Hollywood at the time his films didn't have that anymore and they were much more psychological and existential Mm -hmm. and result seems to be living in his own life you know like he, he wonders where he's going what's next what what should he do well the while well, in the films that he's actually doing those kinds of things are you know they're easy to understand the the, the audience is keyed in into the familiar beats but mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to he doesn't, doesn't seem to want that anymore and polanski represents what's hot and what's new and, and you could see that that it comes to the full when he brings up Polanski, especially early in the film.
0: Absolutely, it's, it's kind of crucial that Rick Dalton, this fictional character, is essentially living next door to uh, Polanski and Tate and it, although they're kind of close in, in reality as far as physical terms they are far apart as far as what they represent to Hollywood, you know, Rick Dalton, the, the faded TV star, always faded mm-hmm. to, to some degree. Whereas as you say, Polanski coming off Rosemary's Baby was kind of like the hot young thing, you know, he was the he was going to be one of the things that propelled Hollywood forward into the 70s and you know, we'll touch on it when we come to the ending but the, the idea of Rick Dalton could maybe just turn his career around if he could just get to the same party or get a meeting in some way. Even if he just bumps into um, Polanski when they're going to pick up their newspapers or something, it's it, as if he's just kind of at the doorstep, of being able to get into that that new club. You know, revitalise his career that way. But he just can't seem to can't seem to get that meeting, as it were. And it's probably worth us touching a little bit more on Rick Dalton and Cliff with prior to the ending, so we can give some more context to to what that, uh, to the, the events of, of the, the ending of the film. Um, Rick Dalton is, as we say, is a sort of faded TV actor who'd been part of a successful gunslinging show of the 1950s. And uh, he essentially sort of left at the end of that to try and start a Hollywood career that never really took off. And by the time we see him in 1969, he's making uh, a guest appearance on a, a TV show, which is sort of a, a gun, gunslinging type show there. And he's he's been struggling with alcoholism and he's struggling with trying to actually sort of get his career back on the right tracks. And it, it, it's interesting that in in that in that show where he's sort of he's the bad guy guest of the week kind of thing. And he's dressed up by I think it's the director who sees, sees Rick Dalton is capable of more than just being sort of a traditional gunslinging hero type, you know, good guy or bad guy. He can you know has more of an acting range within him, and the choice of costume for for Mcdonald's character is essentially the same guys that um is being worn in easy rider by um Dennis Hopper, which is the sort oh, of wow. hippie, hippie gear the the mustache that that kind of thing and it's almost as if Tarantino was essentially dressed uh dressed him up as Dennis Hopper's character. In this tv show uh-huh. and you can see the look of disdain on uh on rick dalton's face when he has this kind of outfit presented to him and you know he's going to be under you know this big mustache and this kind of stuff and obviously it's, it's a western so it's not directly about the hippies but the fact that the director made that choice to dress rick dalton up as this 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 image of this character is probably quite telling on tarantino's part and it it, it Rick Dalton does have to stretch essentially to become a bit more than you know maybe the sort of easy TV um, appearance he thought it might be, and in the end he does actually get some um, some value out of that that character that he's playing because he does he has a bit of a breakdown in, in the back of his um, back of his dressing room while he's trying to figure out his lines and he sort of represent the character the best way he can, but. He, comes back on the set and he delivers this you know great speech and is able to sort of show off that he is an actor of talent and the little girl who we get introduced to who is this great little character with her own, own right and she's this you know precocious little actress who you know really believes in the craft she turns to to uh, leonardo dicaprio's um character and says you know that's the best acting i've ever seen and you can see it it sort of brings a tear to uh to his eye because Actually, being an actor of value and actually being an actor of worth does actually matter to him. And it's not, he does want to be successful and he does want to be rich and he does want to be famous, but he also wants to be good at his job and he does seem to genuinely care about being seen as a good actor. And I think that, that in itself is quite interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that like a point where he's sort of trying to stretch himself, like he's forgetting his lines with mm-hmm. the the timothy or character and they're yeah. they're talking and he keeps forgetting his lines and the director seems to want like have a long take or something like that like, yeah. he just wants to have him go through the whole take and do it as authentically as he as he can but cliff wants a cut and he just wants to, he wants he sort of wants the easier way out and there's that tension there that, that, that he has and i think it, it's almost emblematic of the tension that was happening in the studio system at the time, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a sort of hollowed out, um cookie cutter, sad, and it's a and and they're sort of ro- rolling through the motions, like Rick. Rick Dal- Dalton is, and and he just he needs to find himself and to find himself. You know, he he's offered um sort of throwaway roles by the Al Pacino character in spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns in Italy, and but Rick doesn't, even though Rick's unhappy. He doesn't have the, I think, the sense of adventure. Mm -hmm. So he 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 asks uh, Cliff. He says to Cliff, uh, um, "You know, I'm going to have to do these gay westerns, and my my career's over." And Cliff Cliff says, "How many of the gay westerns have you even seen? You don't even know about them. You haven't tried them." Yeah. This thing. He's in his box. He's even saying lines to himself in his own life. They're reflected in the characters that he's playing you know yeah but, but he, he knows that there's a hole and but he doesn't really know how to go beyond himself and i think it's really captured in that scene where he's talking about the 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 western novel that he's reading the, the little girl's reading like a biography of uh, some director and he's just reading like a, a, a novel about a western but yeah. in that novel he's finding that you know there's a a character who used to be great you know, yeah and he isn't He's great anymore and, and yes yeah yeah exactly but i think that given that the film goes there the fact that the film treats the hippies who are seem to be everything that rick dalton isn't with some level of disdain Mm-hmm. It Does speak to the, the 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 complex nature of the film, you know, like mm-hmm. what actually could have happened is that Rick Dalton meets Pussycat, right? Yep. And he goes to the ranch, and then like he gets involved with these people and he finds himself through that method, and then he comes back and then he's in like a an interesting film by you know someone like Roman Polanski or something like that. That would have been a much more, I think, simple film. Mm-hmm. But what the film does, I think, with the character of Cliff Booth, this is a guy who's been Rick Dalton's stuntman for years. He's 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 very handsome. Yes, but I mean he is Brad because, Pitt, so he, he yeah, comes to certain cachet. At, at and someone mentioned that you, you're kinda of handsome for, for <laughs> but he, yeah. he but he's also like he also seems to play these kinds of characters very well. But then the thing the thing about this Cliff Booth character is that he doesn't have those tensions that Rick Dalton has. He seems to be, even though like he goes back to his trailer, it's quite drab. Mm-hmm. He seems to be quite content. He's in he knows some way better. Yeah, than... he knows he
0: himself. Knows. You
1: know, like yes. in, in 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 the sense in which that this story this story arc is about Rick Dalton trying to find himself. Yeah. Uh, Cliff Booth already knows who he is. And there's a there's a reviewer who said that Cliff Booth. Looked at Pussycat and Cliff Booth represented the old Hollywood or the or kind of dinosaur, mm-hmm. and this Pussycat girl represented this new thing. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I think Cliff Booth is at the end of his novel, a, a novel that, you know, in many ways is also quite complicated. And he's further along the line of finding himself than even the Pussycat girl is. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that on set because there's a, there's a, like, um, rick dalton's taken cliff on set and he asks um, one of the producers if he can have um Cl- cliff be involved and he's mm-hmm. he's he's unhappy because there's the idea that cliff killed his wife yeah and then like cliff gets to be involved and he meets uh, bruce lee and bruce yeah. lee's talking shit about how he could beat up cassius clay and yeah. and cliff booth is like mm-hmm. Like you, you yeah, don't seem to be would, real guy. Advice, like you can't yeah. shoot the fair one with Cassius and um, and and Bruce Lee is offended by that, and then they have a fight, and Rick Dalton shows, I mean, uh, Cliff, Bruce Cliff shows of, Bruce yeah. Lee that he's stronger than him. Yeah, and he proves yeah. that he's stronger than him, and and so you can see that it's actually Cliff that represents, you know, what is authentic and what is real in this film, in my opinion, yeah. anyway.
0: It, it's interesting so just to give some context then so this is happening sort of uh, early to midway through the film and this is establishing who cliff booth is and it's establishing that, as well as being a stunt double for rick Dalton. he's also essentially his handyman his driver he, he's kind of almost his personal assistant and to some degree you know and he's also his best friend they will mm-hmm. go out drinking together they watch films together there's a genuine sort of love and friendship between the two men which is actually quite sweet and um, one thing that one activity that Cliff Booth is doing for uh, Rick Dolan is he's fixing the TV aerial on top of the on top of the uh, the house, and when he's up there, you know, he takes off his shirt and he gets the kind of Brad Pitt kind of gleaming moment. Which Brad Pitt has lots of gleaming moments throughout this film, and he is I think the star of this film. Although Rick, mm-hmm. Dolan, Rick Dolan might be giving the higher billing as far as the character's journey, etc. I think Brad Pitt is the one who really stands out and I think he's the one who really... Certainly the audience I watched it with, I felt like he was the one that made the bigger connection. He's the one who got the bigger laughs. He's he's the one who... Tarantino seemed in love with Cliff Booth, the way he shot him, the way he drove through the city, the way he was able to do these sort of superhuman feats. And as you say, when when he's... uh, There's a meeting with... um, with bruce lee which is presented as a flashback so uh cliff booth is up there on the on the top of the house and he's fixing the aerial and he's kind of thinking back to to a previous time where he was uh being on uh basically being a sort of stunt double on the cliff booth tv show and um um or on the tv show that cliff booth was appearing in and you had uh, bruce lee who was kind of talking this big talk which was you know if I kill anyone, even if it's accidentally, you know, my my, I'll go to I'll go to jail for you know murder and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, there's the kind of joke line that Cliff Bush, if if anyone kills anyone accidentally, they go to jail. That's called manslaughter. You know, it's like what what are you talking about? And you know, Cliffbus is not impressed by the, the spiel that um, that Bruce Lee gives out as far as you know how he can you know beat up Muhammad Ali and he's like the most dangerous man alive and this kind of stuff. And they, they get into it and it's presented as if Cliff Booth not only holds his own, but just takes out. He's just bigger and stronger and more experienced than the mighty Bruce Lee. And the, 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 it's essentially kind of stopped at a kind of midway point because of the, uh, as you say, the uh, one of the producers or producer's wives kind of gets into it with them, but it, it's, pre- it's very much presented as Cliff Booth winning that fight and is, is being the sort of the better fighter. Now, you could say that that is Cliff Booth looking back on that memory and remembering how he thinks. So there is a potential kind of, you know, unreliable narrative side to that. So it is Mm -hmm. possible that this is how Cliff Booth with Rosie Glasses remembers that fight. In reality, that is not what happened. But considering, as you say, the character of Cliff Booth up to that point and the way he's presented afterwards, I'm assuming that's what actually happened. And I'm, I'm assuming that's what Tarantino wants us to think actually happened which Tarantino has defended that decision because he said he's a fictional character. If I say he beats Bruce Lee, he beats Bruce Lee. Literally no one can tell me otherwise because he is my character. I've invented mm-hmm. him. So in that sense, we do have to believe Tarantino's taking it because, you know, it's, we don't know Cliff Booth, but Cliff Booth was based on a real guy. And, you know, obviously Bruce Lee was a real guy. And from what I understand from reading about it, Bruce Lee didn't really have that kind of attitude. I think he was a bit more respectful and uh, a bit more, um, less of an ass than he's presenting in the film, mm-hmm. which there is certain element of Quentin Tarantino presenting basically the perfect white male figure in Brad Pitt and saying he's going to just beat up Bruce Lee. There, there is something a little unsettling about sort of just taking away someone like Bruce Lee, especially considering how few asian male role models there were on tv and film in the west at that time so to to reduce probably the most famous one ever to being essentially a bit of a laughing stock being beaten up by this old stunt guy it is a little bit troublesome but
1: i suppose you know i just think it's it's tarantino's fantasy it is i mean you think about like the wu-tan clan and and movies about the Shaolin you know those movies came in to the American bloodstream really in the in the late 70s and 80s and like there's a people love them and then Americans started to try to recreate them Mm -hmm. and then they always had their you know American heroes or American type characters in those in these sort of recreated films where you know they, they would beat up the, the the you know the asian villains and things like that <laughs> i think it's it's almost like tarantino here is imposing himself in this film mm-hmm. in 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 the in the most in the easiest way that he can and i i think i think it comes across as is problematic in, in some regards mm-hmm. but again it, I, I think it's also quite innocent in in some ways as well it's it's like you know like tarantino doesn't know enough <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that essentially is our our three main characters or at least our two main characters plus Sharon Tate who doesn't get the same sort of narrative time to develop a story as uh, we see with Cliff and um, Rick Dalton but does essentially play an important role as far as what she represents and who she is and the kind of light she brings to the screen. But I suppose at this point we should now really touch on the Manson family side of things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is what leads us to that spectacular sort of 20-30 minute sort of few scenes where I can't remember the last time although I was watching the film and I had maybe some reservations uh, while watching it about just sort of the length of time it took to do certain things and the fact Tarantino was so kind of absorbed in, in the world that he he was he was making and I felt maybe the Rick Dalton stuff maybe went on a little bit too long I have to say, by the time we got towards this, uh, I think it was 8th of August, 1969, which is the the, the date where Sharon Tate was actually murdered by uh, members of the, the Manson family, I had grown to like hanging out with Rick Dalton. I'd grown to like hanging out with Rick Booth. And I was obviously attached to Sharon Tate because I knew of the tragedy which was going to beset her or was what I thought was going to beset her. So by the time we... Start moving towards what we think is the end date. I'm starting to get a little bit worried about these characters that I'm watching. I don't know how you felt, Toby, watching the film.
1: Yeah, and I think that with uh, Cliff Booth and with uh, Rick Dalton, there isn't a t- uh, continued tension in their story. Mm-hmm. There's the 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 sort of visage, the shadow of the hippies and the potential of the Manson family. Throughout the movie, but in their individual stories, there isn't this tension. Mm-hmm. They're too disjoint. The stories are too disjointed. They're too episodic mm-hmm. for, for, for Tarantino to develop any kind of t- tension. And I think that's also aided by the fact that Rick Dalton himself keeps going through you know, different films, doing different things, trying to establish different things. And Cliff Booth is having a bunch of episodes happen to him instead of a continued narrative. Mm -hmm. But I think the the presence of Sharon Tate continually in the film offers the audience member some sort of consistency because they know eventually something's going to happen to her. Yep. And, and 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 as the film goes towards the end, she's in that restaurant. And if mm-hmm. you've ever you know watched any documentaries on her, you saw okay, she's coming towards an inflection point where she's going to be uh, dealt with. But I, I b- before we even touch on the the end of this movie, mm-hmm. I do want to go into like like I mean we talked about how Cliff Booth seems to represent the person who knows himself the mm-hmm. best. I think that. And his interaction with the hippies and the and the is, is quite um, emblematic of this because the hippies, you know, like the the girls on the road and she's saying, like, fuck the police, it's very zeitgeisty. Yeah. You know, she's dressed she's dressed the right, right way. You know, they they're they're the i think Kerouac called it a almost a Dionysian movement, a, a movement back to nature. You know, they've 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 taken it off all of the the stuff of the man, you know, and, and and actually, it's funny. Like Hollywood actually kind of represents the man in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because like towards the end, like they pull up to Rick Dalton's house, and Rick Dalton's like, "Wait, get it, get out of here, hippies!" You know, it's yeah. the, the idea is like he's a guy with a job, even though he's he's a jo- his job's make believe. He's a guy with a job, right? Yeah. And the thing about it is that when Cliff interacts with these people, these people who are who seem to have. Discovered this this pure idea of nature. This an idea that he 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 sees through the bullshit of of this whole thing. You know, they yeah. aren't they aren't treating this old man right. They they you know they're, they're in many ways they're they're lazy. They don't they don't seem to have they're listless, but they're also not getting and they're not really getting anything done. They're in poor condition. You know, they they, they seem to be the the harbingers of this. This new world that someone like Rick Dalton could really really use. and any in you know and, 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 and like I've mentioned before, like if Rick Dalton ever ends up with these people, he would have a quite traditional arc of trying to find himself. But Cliff Booth sees through all of the bullshit. and I think the the final scene where he completely dominates these people. I think more than anything else, underlines the fact that, you know, they are a genre in themselves. They aren't really completely authentic in the way that they think they are. And I think if you look at, uh, at Charles Manson, what Manson tried to do is he, he saw this zeitgeist of um, being authentic and, and the music that, that people were creating, like the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. And he saw that there was a bunch of people, you know they weren't they're not you know middle-aged actors like Rick Dalton but they're a bunch of people who were looking for something because in in their lives and I think um you know movies like The Graduate are very good at underlying this they they are looking for something new something different and they're very impressionable because of it and someone like Charles Manson was able to take these impressionable and vulnerable people and use the the artifice Actually, of the hippie culture, you know, to to, to have them do whatever he wanted, and he, and there's a there's a scene in the car just before they're about to try to commit these murders when they when they say like, these are the people who taught us how to uh, who taught us how to to kill, you know? Yeah. These are people who show us how to kill these actors, and we're going to kill those people because they are the symbols of 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 of. of, of, of... Of fantasy and 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 Mm. and and they are the people who were who were communicating what the world should be like and when we're gonna we're gonna get rid of them and so they they go in and you know you think that they're going for Sharon tate but instead because this is tarantino's world they're going for cliff booth and cliff booth completely eviscerates them in that in that in that scene
0: absolutely so prior to the sort of actual final showdown as you mentioned there is um seen of a car coming up into the drive which features a couple of the hippies and they're sort of circling towards the Sharon Tate uh, where Sharon Tate lives but they essentially get shooed away by Rick Dalton who has no time for these these hippies and their their loudness and their their bullshit story that you know they're they're lost or whatever it is you know he he very much wants these these renegades out of where he lives and so when um they come back again and they, as you say, they don't go towards the Tate house. They instead go towards where Rick Dalton is living. And so Rick Dalton is there and Rick Dalton's Italian wife, who he met while in Italy shooting the films and came back with him. She's there. And we also have uh, Cliff Booth and his dog. Now, before the actual setup of the finale, there is a, a little setup earlier on in the film which is cliff booth has a uh cigarette which has been dipped in acid and (sighs) it's tonight of all nights is the night he's decided to smoke it so when he takes his dog for a walk guess what he's tripping and he's tripping very hard so um shall we just get into the detail of the finale now and then we can build on things afterwards since we've got this far yep yep yeah so we have we have cliff and we have his dog, and we have the wife of uh, of Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character, um, and they are confronted one way or the other by these hippies, these members of the Manson family, who are basically coming into their house to kill and to stab and to shoot and to heinously murder these Hollywood people, and as you say... Take out the people who showed them how to kill, etc. In what happened in real life, of course, was this helter-skelter Manson uh, episode was to do with, you know, killing these famous white people and then trying to blame it on the, the Black Panthers, I believe it was, and then yeah, trying, to, right. trying to essentially Create. start
1: a race war. It's race war, yeah.
0: Yes, uh, I think they were going to use the blood of their victims. I think they did to write pig or something like that or yeah, piggy like, on, the pig on the wall. The whole yeah.
1: Of the house. yeah
0: really horrible stuff so we have <laughs> we, we have, we have the, the italian wife who is essentially uh sort of grabbed and taken into the uh taken into the living room by one of the members of the manson family and we have another men- member of the manson family who is now in the house and is pointing his gun right at cliff while all this is going on we have uh leonardo dicaprio's character who is, so Rick Dalton is basically in the pool, he's got his headphones on, and he has no idea what's going on. He's just, it's another night of relaxing and doing his thing as far as he's concerned. So because Cliff has had this acid uh, dip cigarette, he is completely out of it. And as a result, his reaction to the reality he is facing is very different to what it would have been without the cigarette and he can't comprehend fully what he's actually seen, So he's basically breaking down in fits of laughter as a gun is pointed at him. Now, important context for this scene is that earlier on in the film, the Manson member who's actually pointing the gun at at Cliff, there is a near sort of meeting, as far as uh, those two are concerned, at, at, at the ranch and that kind of thing, as far as... Uh, referring to Tex um, who is um, in the earlier scene he's basically he's off doing some sort of ranching activity showing uh, guests around the nearby old ranches and there's a great shot of him galloping on a horse to kind of come back to try and save the day for the hippies when Cliff is there and when he's beating up one of the other hippies we don't we get a fabulous scene in that scene of, of the horse been ridden and it is fantastic and but he gets there and Cliff's already escaped as it were so now we have these two characters coming together we have we have Tex who was a real-life member of the Manson family and we have a completely out of it Cliff and so when the gun is presented to him Cliff is uh, appears to be completely gone and you do really worry that wow you know something really terrible is going to happen Thankfully, for Cliff, he does at least have some whereabouts as far as his wits are concerned because he's conscious enough to sick his dog on the on Tex, mm. and uh, he's also uh, aware enough to throw a can of, uh, kind of his dog food or other kind of food basically head first at one of the other Manson family members and completely knocks them out. And what we get is an absolutely glorious sort of. 10 minute stretch or whatever it is with this sort of music built up around them as the most over the top violence against the Manson family members plays out so we have you know proper taking of heads and smashing them against walls and going into glass and all this kind of stuff and it's completely over the top sort of Tarantino violence to the point where sort of everyone sort of gets mashed to death either by dogs biting them on the genitals or Heads getting thrown into walls or whatever it is. Cliff Booth ends up getting stabbed, but sort of taking out most of the members between him and the dog. And the Italian wife actually, I think, sort of kicks one of the members as well in quite a funny scene. But one of the uh, members does, who has a gun actually does sort of end up breaking through the glass and falling into the swimming pool, uh, uh, which completely freaks out Cliff, um, Rick Dalton, who is oblivious to all of this up until this point. And uh do you want to describe what happens next, Toby, once we have the hippie in the swimming pool? I think um like,
1: I think she she for me she's almost like completely out of it. She can only she is, yes. act as an almost like animalistic um it's almost like something from the things. Like she's she's not really human anymore. She's just a no. Tarantino prop and she's trying to kill uh, Rick, trying to kill whoever he doesn't know who's it's, who it's Rick Dalton or, or whatever, and he manages to get out, and then he gets his flamethrower, and then he manages to, to like completely incinerate her with the flamethrower. And what's yeah. interesting about that scene is that like he's borrowing from his own films mm-hmm. in order to um, defeat these people in reality. Yeah. So like his, you know like. He, You know, he's he's generally he's someone who's pretending. He was pretending to uh, incinerate some Krauts in in his uh, his films, and now he gets to do it. And I think that's that's really, I mean, that underlines Tarantino's own attitude towards history more than anything else. Like history is just the canvas for his ideas and his films, and, and him getting to enact. The revenge that that he wants to on 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 whatever villain, yes. um, in in history that there is, yeah,
0: yeah. So the essentially as as we've talked about earlier, there was a a movie that Mc Dalton had been in where he had uh, torched some Nazi bastards um, with uh, with a flamethrower, and it's not really alluded to what kind of happens to that flamethrower um, until we get to the scene where it turns out he had. Not only kept the prop, but kept it well, a well alive in the sense that it was had enough gas in it, etc. For him to basically just switch it on as he as he needs to, and yes, he does completely burn the hippie to death. In what And it's... there's
1: absolutely no reason for him to have this thing. No, because like there's another scene where he's like, where he's like with someone from the production team, and he's trying to use the flamethrower, and then they're like, wait, and he's like, can can this like, can I can this be more safe? Can this like shoot? Yeah. Um, at a milder level, and they're like, "No, it's a flamethrower." Yeah. So, like, there's there isn't even like, um, Rick Dalton was particularly enamoured by this flamethrower, and he brought it home. It's just it's just available to him. Yes, because I mean that's what Tarantino's world is like. Yeah, you know? absolutely. People just have flamethrowers hanging around.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> in the end, um, Cliff is um, taken away to hospital, but the assumption is that he is fine and he will survive while that's happening we have sharon tate coming down to see what all the big commotion is and as it turns out we he gives the explanation of what's happened and the uh rick dalton has survived but the uh <laughs> those those dirty hippies were not so lucky but it's not just that the hippies have been defeated and you know this moment in history has not happened now the the doors have opened to meeting Sharon Tate, which in theory mm-hmm. might lead to Roman Polanski, et cetera, et cetera. Now for Rick Dalton. And it does open up essentially this, this door, which might've seemed closed. Otherwise that's uh, Rick Dalton may have a, a future in Hollywood. And in fact, Sharon Tate does actually, from what I remember does actually remember, Oh, you're, you're Rick Dalton. You know, you were, you were that sort of TV cowboy. Like I, I remember you kind of thing. So, as you say, Rick Dalton is remembered and Rick Dalton is sort of fondly remembered as far as I remember how the film frames it. And he is now got this life to lead where, with his Italian wife has survived and his best friend is alive and those dirty hippies have been destroyed. And maybe he's now got an invitation to be in a
1: Roman Polanski film for all we know. But yeah. And what's re- what's really interesting about this is like, here he goes up to the house and um, the other guy that, um, that, tate is is with um seems to know all about him and they've been they've probably been talking about him but he never had the courage to go over there and introduce himself or something like it's it's a really nice ending and it's an ending that would be borrowed from the kinds of movies that like dalton had been in himself in old hollywood what's interesting about the ending is that it's not a roman polanski ending because roman polanski movies end with you know the villain winning mm-hmm. and uh, you know like in chinatown where this is the, the ending is a is a dark tragedy Rosemary's baby where the ending is like an even worse dark tragedy like it's not it's it's almost like tarantino it's, yeah, it's a fairy tale tarantino's ending is the revenge of old hollywood it is on um on the
0: counterculture on the and
1: counterculture the, yeah. the new
0: hollywood, <laughs> exactly. you know yeah. that, that does bring us to the point now whereas what happens to hollywood and what happens to america without this sort of turning point so we've already had easy rider which i think would have been out by this point but do we have the same movement away from old hollywood towards new hollywood without this turn of events now in reality I'm sure that probably would have happened anyway. Maybe we still would have the cynical 70s that we did, but it does kind of leave the question open in this Tarantino verse where Charles Manson is essentially not a thing or Charles Manson has been defeated or whatever it is that's going to play out with Charles Manson. Do we have the same cynical 70s cinema, which we ended up having? Do we have the same cynical 70s America, which we ended up having? And you know, maybe maybe we do, but we don't know and we can never know. And while Tarantino's films, for the most part, are connecto- connected to his Tarantino universe and you see things like the Red Apple Cigarettes, which is kind of presented throughout his films and presented this idea that I think apart from Death Proof and Kill Bill, which I think are supposed to be movies within that cinematic universe, mm-hmm. every all the other films are supposed to be connected to one degree or another, you know, we we don't know exactly what happens in the seventies as it plays out. We know that in Reservoir Dogs they still listen to seventies music, etc., so the culture probably hasn't changed too much. But you know, it is a fascinating thought to be left with. What, what was Hollywood like as a result of the actions of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth? And what was America like after not having Charles Manson and this sort of poison pill of the counterculture?
1: I, I think um Tarantino would have to kill Roman Velansky, you know. <laughs> you know bring that bring that about. Yeah. You know? And yeah, it is a really um it's a really good picture because there is that feeling in, in Rick Dalton as he's representing a, a system that is old and that needs um sort of a way to find out You know how to how to what's new and what's what's exciting, what's interesting, and then the the film is suffused with the music of the counterculture, and 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 like like you say, like in other movies, that music that music is still there. The 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 cultural um, influences are still there. So I mean, the ending is a fairy tale ending, but I I don't know, and like you yeah, and like you said, I don't know necessarily if this affects. The way the seventies goes about, I think what Tarantino is able to do here is he's able to present even that period, the period of Aquarius, the period of authenticity, as a genre within itself. And then he has the the character of Cliff Booth as the the moral um, sort of the, the moral center of the film, and I think that. But then I think that because he's the moral center of the film. You 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 end up with quite a normal arc for for Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. I think the the fact that the 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 film ends up with them you know them being sort of internal friends really. You know it's like oh don't don't worry about it. Stay with that that sexy Italian chick. I'll be fine because I'm you know I'm the the man with no name and you, you're you're going to come and see me, and you know you're going to get to do um, movies with with, with 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 Roman Polanski. So it is. It's 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 the the structure of of the old cinema,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I think that maybe I think maybe it's because that Cliff Booth, that man with no name character, that character you see in Once Upon a Time in the West, that character that is internal in these kinds of movies. Maybe it maybe that character does win over over the counterculture. Maybe maybe, maybe that is the. The lesson of this of of this film, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, the yeah. fact is, Cliff has defeated um, the Manson family, and he's defeated Bruce Lee. So, yeah, uh, saying whether or not he could, I mean, who knows? Maybe he would have beaten Nixon in an election. We just we don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard yeah. to say what
1: Cliff can't do. Um, I think, but it's so it's like, like if you look at this movie. You look at like the music and then the hippies and things like that. Like those represented like real, powerful demographic changes that completely changed the Hollywood. Yeah. Like they, they they came out with the uh, the new producers came out with the Graduate. They came out with Bonnie and Clyde, mm-hmm. which represents the kind of violence, the activistic violence that Tarantino like he wouldn't exist without that film. Mm-hmm. And it's like they, they created this. And these forces are so powerful and unstoppable and it's i know tarantino gets to make a movie which is i think in many ways uh self-contained where hollywood can win over but i i and i think that i think it, it remains that tarantino's main theory of making historical films is to make fantasies and and it is to make fantasies where you know like i think i think the the man with no name thing is is important because there is a moral feeling that those classical movies have that the 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 Roman Polanski's movies don't have, mm-hmm. and I think Tarantino really shows his um, enthusiasm and 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 love for that period in this film, and I think in in the end that wins over against the counterculture. Yeah, yeah.
0: It is interesting. I mean, Tarantino is in love with sort of american 20th century which i mean to be honest you and i are in love with american 20th century so we can't really blame him on that one um it is interesting that you know tarantino is supposedly going to stop at 10 films this is his ninth there had been talk whether or not that would include if he did a star trek film for instance whether or not that'd be outside the ten i'm not really sure he has given an interview recently where he says he's kind of come up with an idea for a book which um it sounds as if it's something along the lines of uh soldier comes back from world war ii and is disenchanted by the sort of the fakeness of hollywood films and it not having a reality and, and and instead he starts trying to connect with like italian cinema and some of it he understands and some of it he doesn't and that's kind of his way back into to life and it's interesting that you know of course tarantino would tell a story about you know Sort of uh, a, a hero type character who comes back and he sees the world through cinema because Tarantino sees the world through cinema,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know it's of course Tarantino is telling a film about the '60s and the Manson family, and he's doing it through the eyes of a TV star and his body double. I mean, his stunt double. It, it's just it's it, it's what Tarantino would do, and it's exactly what's happened. I think it to some extent. I think. Tarantino's I I when I first saw Tarantino's films I saw them when I was a teenager and you know you're immediately just hit by just the fantastic nature of them and his ability to kind of tell a story and you know his visuals and music and then some of his other films come out and I was maybe a little less keen on things like Death Proof and I didn't really like uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 so much and there was maybe a bit of kind of reaction to maybe Tarantino Tarantino is always either used other people's films in a sort of um as a touchstone or he's just kind of outright just almost ripped them off i mean he he is very much it's very hard to tell a tarantino film without referencing other people's films that's just how he tells films Mm -hmm. but i was able to kind of come to terms with tarantino and since having this thought i'm now able to always place tarantino with a more positive thought because i think of tarantino and the way he makes films as he's essentially just making uh a museum for cinema mm-hmm. and every film he makes is just a new attraction within that museum that you can kind of walk through and you can go oh that is a reference to this film or that is a reference to a previous one of his own films or whatever it is and so and maybe it, I, i've come to terms with the fact that tarantino isn't going to just Go off and make Lost in Translation, and have something completely sort of unrelated to, you know, the the things that he's so clearly fond of. You know, he's not going to go off and make, you know, Little Women or something. You know, it's it's very much going to be his own sort of uh, pop stylized version of reality. But I'm okay with that now because I kind of understand what he's doing. Is he needs to tell his love of cinema and of music, etc., through different sort of tracks within the same album as it were you know he mm-hmm. wants to express his love of you know whether or not it's black exploitation cinema or whether or not it's you know new age uh new age cinema or whether or not it's retelling old hollywood or whether or not it's retelling you know world war Two or spaghetti western films whatever it is you know he he obviously needs to continue to tell variations on a theme and i kind of come to terms with that now and i'm um, i do I'm intrigued to see what he does next and if he will genuinely stop at 10. I'm also intrigued to hear the fact that there have been some talk about they could potentially take the longer cuts off Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and essentially turn it into a mini series on Netflix. You know, oh, wow. you know, there are things, you know, whether or not that will actually happen, but clearly he is not going to be done telling stories and he's very much wants to radiate in the stories he's already told. And you can see that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which You know, is what two and a half hours or whatever it is, and it does feel like a long film. But there is something there. I would recommend going to see the film, even if you don't love everything about it, because you do come out of it with an appreciation of that time, if nothing else. I think.
1: Yeah, I think when Tarantino tells a historical tale, he 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 will often try his best to make it authentic in terms of the background as. He can and and he's done that in, in in Django, in in Glorious Bastards, and in in this film, it's it, it's a sort of like a staging authenticity as opposed to a narrative realism that he's he's bringing. But then, uh, like you say, like he is really about remixes. He's the remix director. He's restaging yeah. old exhibitions. He's 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 playing old he's playing old music. He's restaging old exhibitions. He's the museum of cinema, and his stuff is about being referential like how do you reference something and you know make a nod to it satirize it things like that but then then i think i think the problem that you have with tarantino is a problem that we probably have had with um some pop culture more broadly it's like is pop culture at this point is pop culture just about reflecting on the past you know i Mm -hmm. think there is almost like a even in, in literature there's a movement to like if something isn't like making a reference to something else and isn't necessarily um, like important or art and, and even in in, in in the art world is people restaging old exhibitions. and I think Simon Reynolds, who was on this podcast, has written a book called Retromania," which mm. is which is all about that. And I think that Tarantino, with with one more film left, as he says, like is he feeling like the Rick Dalton character? Is he feeling that he's done everything and is he looking for something new? Yeah, although in in this movie, with Cliff Booth, he seems to execute, you know, what is new, mm-hmm. and, and but you know by having that 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 eternal almost uh, man with no name character. But w- is, is Tarantino will he be able to find a, a a new story without trying to reference not necessarily trying to reference his own body of work, but body of work of of other people and 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 then you know i mean and when we even talk about this uh how who's referencing who's restaging things is like the argument always is like every artist is is in um is influenced by other artists but there is a there is a distinction that we have to make between you know um currents and cultures and even like even the hippie culture here like people like Jack Kerouac or, or people like, um, like Tom Wolfe, when they were writing about it, they were doing things that people hadn't done before, you know? And the, the culture was, 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 especially in Western um, American culture, they were doing things that people weren't doing, you know? And then this is mm-hmm. why the whole cinema system changed over and it changed hands and you had executives changing hands and you had people not making money and then people making money because they had changed. And it's, it's in a sense in which like, there is paradigms within culture, and and and, and Tar- Tarantino represents a particular paradigm at a time in place, and it's like, when is are we going to find something new, you know? And it's it's like it was almost like we're like the Rick Dalton character right now, like, yeah. what's new? What's coming up? And Tarantino isn't the one who's bringing that. He's he's doing the best of what had been done before or, or, or the paradigm that his movies mm-hmm. um, were the best examples of but like what is new you know yeah, yeah
0: absolutely in, in and you know even when tarantino was this fresh new face in the 90s and when reservoir dogs made you know an impact then pulp fiction kind of changed cinema as far as you, know, you had a whole slew of films kind of trying to be pulp fiction essentially after it came out you know although that was new and you know the sort of narrative thread of of this sort of non-linear timeline etc was if not new at least it was became more popular as a result of tarantino it was as you say interesting that it was framed through you know using old music or referencing old films or whatever it is whereas it, it seems now i'm not i'm not sure tarantino can release a film now it doesn't feel like tarantino can release a film now which is going to change cinema it doesn't feel like he would release a film which then people would go and copy or would greatly influence people. Might respect his films, and people might really enjoy them. And mm-hmm. you know, people may go away and listen to his soundtrack for the next three months, like I've been doing. But I don't feel as if you know. There's an element of you know how many films or how many directors can actually change cinema, and how does I mean, it's very hard to change cinema at this moment in time because so much of cinema is dominated by you know superhero films, etc. So trying to get the the niche out. You know, removed from that, it, it it's that in itself is probably a harder time to influence now than it was kind of previously when Tarantino was making his mark. But I do feel as if, I, I mean, I enjoy Tarantino's films. I'm not, I'm not desperate for him to continue making the same film over over and over again. And I'd be happy if he stopped at ten and his last one was a really good one. I'd hate for him to kind of end up being a sort of pitied character you know where he's having to make these films um just out of because he's got no more stories to tell but he feels he he must kind of prove himself tarantino's obviously not at that point and all his films still make a shed load of money and his his films are still attracting all the big actors in the world so no doubt he will go out on top but whether or not tarantino can ever make a film which will resonate in the zeitgeist the same way as in the past Probably not, but
1: yeah, because the stakes are different. Like, this is a great film. I love the film. I love the soundtrack. I love being in the film. I wish I, I there was a video game where I could just be in the <laughs> film. But the stakes are different with, with a guy like Tarantino, because as an artist in his twenties, he changed cinema. You yeah, know, and that that those are the stakes. And like Rick Dalton looking over at this uh, this western with this character who, in his twenties, was this hotshot, but he's sort of in the sort of autumn of his of his tenure as an actor and he doesn't know what's new and what he can do and and how he can change and and it's with Tarantino as well you know like how are you going to make another zeitgeisty moment doing this referential stuff that we've been doing and I I think it's but those are the stakes
0: yeah yeah well I mean clearly the next trend in cinema will be the Nixon Cinematic Universe so (laughs) once uh, once we're able to sell that to a studio I think we'll really see a uh, revolution in cinema, but first
1: the uh, uh, first the trilogy podcast, then the documentary, <laughs> my guy. We, we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all, yeah,
0: It all starts with this podcast, Toby. I'm telling you. Okay, um, is there anything else you'd like to um, add to uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or should we call it a day there?
1: No, yeah, yeah, well, I think we covered how much we enjoyed it, the themes, and we also got to talk about cinema, the world of cinema in general. Yeah, I think this I enjoyed this review.
0: I enjoyed this review. I enjoyed the film, although like I say, I probably enjoyed the film more afterwards than I did at certain times during it, but
1: no cuz think... like the for the first arc I was like I was almost dancing. Like it was so <laughs> much fun. I was I was thrilled. And I think but because it is one of these types of films where it's much more about the characters. Yeah. So, you know, if 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 the narrative isn't ticking on with with, with certain beats, you, you you might get lost in it. Mm-hmm. but then towards the end it picks up again and it, it is it's a fantastic movie so you should go, you go out and see it if you can yep and yeah yeah it's, it's a great movie but i think with the stakes like with someone like tarantino you know it's 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 about your you know, what what is your imprint on you know film as an art form in the future and 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 i think with this statement he hasn't made that yet and he might never make it, really. You
0: know. <laughs> Absolutely, and yeah. I will be when I do eventually get around to watch this at the same time. I think being, I think I'll probably be more accepting of the world he makes because when I was a little bit frustrated watching the film, kind of just watching the the Leonardo DiCaprio character, kind of just spend quite a lot of time trying to, you know, make his way through a scene or try and learn his lines and that kind of stuff, and I felt I needed to have more going on as far as the narrative push was concerned
1: you know like those because those were i mean yeah they were they were quite trying for the audience member but you can almost see like the 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 characters trying to discover something and maybe tarantino himself is trying to push himself you know yeah because in in previous i suppose in pulp fiction things like that that although they the, the 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 narrative dynamic was disjointed there wasn't a lot of over focus on scenes. The scenes are like almost like pre packaged in many mm-hmm. ways because he was borrowing from them. But he's, he, I think, in in this film, he's commenting on himself in some ways, and yeah. maybe he's trying to push himself. You know, maybe he's trying he's trying to find something something new.
0: Well, I'm sure for his tenth film, he shall call on us, no doubt. Um... <laughs> Obviously. We're we're
1: part of the the the, the podcasting world. It's the zeitgeist of uh, <laughs> the, the late tens. Like uh, you know, exactly. This is, this maybe, is what's new.
0: <laughs> maybe instead of having a nineteen sixties LA radio host on his soundtrack, maybe a lot of us introducing Miley Cyrus or whoever yeah, it is he, popular these uh, days. A uh,
1: uh, uh, sort of a nineteen twenties art form radio. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can really borrow some from... <laughs> from us as we're pushing a, a long culture
0: absolutely yeah okay well on that thought um i think we should probably uh head off and head back to the world of 1969 and the world Quentin Tarantino has created because i think both of us would enjoy yeah the, like um uh, manson,
1: manson is supposed to be the end of the, the 60s isn't it it's it's, it's yeah. there's two. i mean it's always like like the end of the 19th century is it 1789 or is it january the first 1800 yes or is it with with the 60s is it the election of nixon yeah
0: is it
1: um january the first 1970 or is it the manson murders yeah yep and in our next podcast when we do law and order on nixon yeah um it's going to be we're going to explore another sort of endpoint of the 60s yeah yeah so we do have it's
0: possible that we might not do nixon law and order next but our next uh nixon themed episode will be the first part of a trilogy which as you say will be law and order so um we will get to talk about nixon for another hour which you know we love to do uh so from toby uh nixon and whoever else uh, would like to uh, join in our goodbyes Uh, thank you for listening and uh, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast if you could that would be great Uh, from Toby and myself, goodbye goodbye